children, children know how to cut to the chase. I recently read about a group of children who were asked where babies came from. First to answer were two brothers. One was five and one was six. And considering the birth of their new baby brother, six-year-old Donald said, God made him all without any glue or nails or anything. Another child said of God's creativity, he draws us first and then he cuts us out. Or take this response of a five-year-old to his four-year-old sister's question about where babies come from. He initially asserted, babies come from heaven, of course, and his sister was not satisfied. She said, if babies come from heaven, why did mommy have to go to the hospital? After a long pause, her brother said, oh, that's easy to get the skins put on. And that's exactly right, to get the skins put on without realizing it. This childish statement is both theologically and biologically more accurate about human beings in their origins than most of our brilliant scholars, scientists, sociologists, professors, and political talking heads have any idea about these days. We have come from heaven, but we've also been clothed in an earthly tent which we call skin. A human being is a wonderful integration of both. A priceless earth dweller made in the image of maker, but tragically, to our demise, as a society, we are quickly ignoring this truth. And we're trading it for convenience and foolish experimentation. I mean, crazy experimentation. And this sad truth includes the church. I just read a Lifeway survey that found about 70% of women who've had an abortion self-identify as Christians. 43% said they attended a Christian church at least once a month or more at the time they aborted their baby. Human beings are swiftly losing their value. And it's our job. We are called the salt and light on the earth. It's our job to confront this callousness that our culture is encouraging towards human life. We're callous. And if we don't confront it, nobody else will. One philosopher, actually who's an atheist, which is ironic, he said it was Christianity that first introduced the concept of equal rights. Christians were the only ones who taught that each human is on the same level as other fellow creatures of God but we're losing this whole idea of equal worth and dignity. And if we lose it, humans will start treating each other like animals. We will. There's this uh, philosopher, his name's Peter Singer. And I like to state his title. He is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and a Laureate Professor at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. Sounds very important, does it not? Here's what Peter Singer has said. The life of the newborn baby is of less value to it than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee is to the non-human animal. He's a very intelligent man. He even recommends using human beings in medical experiments instead of animals if the animal is deemed to have a higher cognitive capacity by the attending expert at the time. 
Are we, are we no different than animals? Honestly, are we? Because I'm not sure people know anymore. Or are we made in His image? Genesis details our beginnings. And it is this beginning that gives us dignity. And so we're going to start a two-part study on in His image. I'm going to take the first part today, and in two weeks I'll take the next part. Trevor's going to preach next week in between this two part. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we are going to find our origins of humanity starting in verse 26 through 28 and then we're going to read 2-7. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and then 2-7. Verse 26 says, Then God said, so he made the whole creation, and it says, then God said. Let us, as Jared explained last week, this is the plurality. God's three in one is Trinitarian. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. And then look at 2 verse 7 said, then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I also, when we go through, I'm going to be referencing this book a lot. I want to recommend a book. I rarely do this, but I want you to buy this book. I want you to learn this book. This may be one of the most important books written in the last... It deals with all of the issues we're going to be dealing with in this country in the next 15 years. And you need to be, to me, you need to be up on it. It's called Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. It's an incredible book. So the truth of the matter is we are in a battle for human worth and if we don't fight, everyone will lose and the people we are fighting against will lose because Satan hates God's image which means he hates us, every one of us. So the question is, what is man? There's a very interesting psalm written by David. He's pondering the wonders of God's creation. He gazes upon the heavens, the stars. He considers the glory of the moon. He looks at sheep, oxen, and all the beasts of the field. He looks at the birds, the fish, and the larger sea creatures. He even considers angels. And then he says in Psalm 8-4, What is man as compared to all these things? And he's saying it in reference to what is man that you care for him? That you care for him? Because David knows it's man that God centers all of his attention on. His heavenly gaze is on us. While we wonder about God, ironically, he wonders about us. 
Why does God care so much about little old you and me, honestly? All through Scripture, it's clear that God can't seem to take his eyes off us. Why? We aren't that special, are we? If you grew up in a Baptist church, you probably heard over and over again, it's like one of the most famous statements about human beings is that we are worthless, no good, dirty, rotten, old sinners. So what good are we? What is man? Genesis answers this very clear, as clear as crystal. In a way it is written, you need to see the movement of the writer. Jared read for us last week the opening salvo of creation. Things happen fast. Like fast. Boom, boom, boom. Light flashes. Oceans roar. Land appears. The earth starts sprouting green things. Trees, grass, grapes, and tomatoes. Then the sun pop, blazing bright. Pop! In the blue sky, a soft moon was pasted up on a black canopy of night next to sparkling stars, planets, and swooshing comets, and then the water started swarming with schools of fish, bursts of water blowing out of whales. You have seals, dolphins. You can hear the sharks start snapping. Then he dots the sky with birds, and they're flying, and they're swirling, they're swooping, and they're chirping in trees. And then not to be outdone, the earth itself filled with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And sheep, lambs, cows, and teeny tiny little spiders and ants and worms. And then we come to verse 26. It is as if the way it's written, even scholars, it's as if God took a deep breath The Trinity went into an extended consultation and said this, let us make man, Adam, in our image. In our likeness. One writer describes this moment, although one among many creatures, humans are somehow different. When God made the human species, he began by taking counsel with himself, let us make mankind, and as a diamond cutter contemplating a priceless Jim pauses before the initial stroke. So the Creator paused. And as one especially engaged in what He was about to do, began to create man. Wayne Grudem writes, God seems almost to jeopardize His unique glory by sharing His image and rule with a mere creature. That's a fascinating statement. God's almost going to jeopardize. What does he mean by that? God dares to share his glory with us. Like that's a daring thing. In other words, God took a giant risk in making us. No other creature, no other creature has been bestowed with such dignity, honor, and value. We have the capacity to rise higher than angels. But this also must allow for the potential to fall to the lowest depths with the devil. And many of us do. We are truly unique. Scripture says we're unique in two ways. So you could say, next slide, the glory of humanity is displayed in two unique things. First of all, the uniqueness of design. First and foremost, God, it says, imparted his breath directly to us. Look at 2.7 again. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became a living creature. Theologians call this immediate impartation. Another fancy word is sufflation. So I use those words so you think I'm intelligent. But all sufflation means is an empty cavity has been poured into. 
And that means there is direct endowment of the Creator's life to the creature. So in other words, we are from God. We are from God. But secondly, we've been equipped to live on this earth. So we are made of the stuff of the earth. We are of clay. We are of earth. Measurable, we're breakable, we're bendable, we're mortal. Body and soul is sewn together to make up an integrated unity that reflects God. Uh, this is just a general statement. I'm going to go into more detail in a second. But first and foremost, we're unique in design. We are from God and from earth in one. Kind of like the incarnation of Christ. But he was the very God. Unique in purpose. God says in verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. And then it says the image of God, he created him, that the idea of he created humanity or mankind, and he created mankind in two genders, male and female. So both sexes are vital and intrinsic to our nature. They are part of us. So if you're male, that's a who you are. If you're female, that's who you are. It's vital to who you are. And in this design, our purpose is to display Him as image bearers. In part two, we're going to talk about how together a man and a woman help fully display the image of God, but today we're just talking about the human person. Image bearing means we are prototypes of His character. His likeness is stamped on us, body and soul. I like what one writer says about the definition of image-bearing. Image is the human spirit soul which is imprinted by the Creator with those endowments that enable us to transcend the world of lesser creatures. And we live our lives that can reflect, display, and enjoy His glory. So in other words, we alone have been made to enjoy Him forever. You and I are the only ones that really can do that. Fully enjoy Him forever. Another, worship, another word for that is worship. Look at it like this. I like to look at it like this. If we're talking about likeness. If some alien landed on our planet after watching us and went back to his people and they were to ask him, what are humans like? they probably talk like this. What are humans like? That's, I don't know why we think they talk like that. Because E.T. did some... That's a made-up story. Do you know that's made up? I think we think that's real because the Klingons, they talk like that. Anyhow, what are humans like? Here's what the proper answer would be if an alien saw humans and went back and they reported on what we're like. They would say, well, they're not like monkeys. They're not like apes. They're not like lions or cheetahs. You know what they're like? They're like God. That's what like means. That's who we most resemble. Odd, we don't think like that. So what does it mean then to be like God? We've got to go more into depth. What does it mean we carry His image? More practically, how are, how are we like Him? How are we like Him? Well, image bearing means three things. Number one, it means since He is a person, so am I. He is a person, so am I. I'm an individual person that is also made to relate to other people. That's what personhood has been designed for a relationship. But I'm an individual in myself. So as a person, that means like God, I've been given the ability to think, reason, feel, and decide. Traditionally, this has been said, we have mind, will, and emotion. We as creatures have mind, will, and emotion, and so does God. 
you look in Scripture, God has a mind. He has desires. He has will. And he has emotion. When Solomon had all his wives, it says God was angry with Solomon. And speech, the ability to speak a coherent language, brings all of these capacities of the human, of the human in focus. Because to speak I, speak, I have to be able to think. I have to want. And it's usually an emotive response to something. It is the direct, speech is the direct evidence of personhood. It is only man who looks at the heavens and declares like David, what is man? When was the last time you ever heard your dog say, what is dog? <laughs> oh. You know, you ever, I think I do see my dog, oh, when he looks at the night. What is, nobody says that. Just man says, what is man? One person asked, why, why do not animals speak? Another answered, because they've got nothing to say. They really don't. They're kind of dumb. How dare you call my cat dumb? They're dumb. Anyhow, not only do we as humans speak, but we alone can respond to God's speech. One writer said, Objects roll downhill, animals react to stimuli, but neither objects nor animals respond to the word of the Creator. Only the creature who's in the divine image does that. We're made incredibly Second thing, what does image mean? Is I'm meant to be holy. I am meant to be holy. Only I can reflect the character of God's righteousness and goodness. That's what God wants me to reflect. His righteousness and goodness. That's how I've been designed. Holy is my moral self. Luther said the proof of this is contained in our faculty of conscience. It is the place where God reckons with us through the law. He deals with us through what's right and what's wrong. And so we have imprinted on our soul what we ought and ought not to do. We know. Our conscience acquits us. When we do what we know, we should and condemns us when we do not. Even an atheist gets angry when he thinks he's wronged. Smack an atheist in the face for no reason. He'll re reel back in horror and say, what are, you, what are you doing? His conscience is provoked. Even though he thinks he's not made by God, he just betrayed that he is. What if, um, could you imagine if mosquitoes had consciences? You kill one, the rest would cry, why? Last week would have been a holocaust. Ah, whoa, you know, like crazy. I, I didn't hear one mosquito cried, and I killed a lot of them. I'm sure you did too. The third thing about humanity is I have agency. I have agency. That means God made me to represent him on earth. Trevor's going to talk more about this next week, but while he rules in heaven, he asked me to rule here on earth in his stead. Image bearing means, this is cool, I get to manage, organize, and beautify his world just as he would. I get to beautify his world, help beautify his world. Some have even argued that the better the management and organization humans bring to bear, the brighter the beauty he intended shines. So through management and organization, beauty comes greater. Keats, who's a poet, wrote, To be human is to know that a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Beauty is God's gift. As one writer states, God has made our world rich with color and sound, redolent with fragrance, filled with gladness, 
love and beauty, and above all, the response of laughter. Only God's image laughs. Animals never do. Maybe the greatest argument, maybe the greatest argument against evolution and atheism is the presence of laughter. Amoebas and apes don't laugh. Did you ever hear of an amoeba laughing? In the, you know, you look at it in the microscope. It has no mind. Did you know that? It has no mind. Because of our importance, God took his time when he made us. Let's look a little closer to our design. Let's go back to design. Psalm 139 says, For you form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So how exactly are we wonderfully composed? Are we two separate things that are simply stuck together, glued together, like that kid said? Are we just glued together? Or are we through and through priceless works of wonder? Are we knitted there's much confusion on this point, and there shouldn't because it's very obvious, but it matters. Matter, how we're made, matters. It matters to God. So first of all, as we said, but let's go deeper, there is a physical side to us. We call this the material part, Genesis 2-7. Lord God formed man out of dust. Formed man out of dust. So we are products of the earth. Even Adam's name means red clay or red earth. We are meant to live here. We are of flesh. We have been designed for this earth. We've been fashioned with a body to live here. We are of earth. This writer Jewett writes, we are part of the world of things. Specifically, we are mammals with large brains, subject to the same law of physics and chemistry that govern all of God's creatures in this world. If we slip when climbing... Gravity will pull us down the mountain like a stone. So we are made of matter that operates by the rules of nature. Some would say, if we are of clay, it's not much to boast about. If we're of clay, that's not that significant. In fact, the Nazis determined the human body only has enough fat to make seven bars of soap. It's not that expensive. Some biologists say the elements in our body are worth about a dollar. Just the mere elements of you know, we have some gold, some copper. We have other things in there. Boil it down, we're about a buck. Well, well, our blood could be about 50. And if you're young, you can donate your organs on the black market for 100,000, but still, that's not that much. But God says, regardless of the current market price of the aggregate human material, chapter 9 in Genesis, go to chapter 9, 5 and 6 says this. Chapter 9, 5 and 6, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So he's saying in 9, 5 and 6, this body is still stamped with his image, so therefore the body that is killed is priceless. That is why God declares it is the highest of crimes to destroy this image bearing life. Thou shall not kill. And then that leads us to the immaterial part. The physical body is designed as a temple. 
a mobile temple to carry around the immaterial, which includes the soul and the spirit of man. Soul in the Old Testament is described as breath that is given, which distinguishes the living from the dead. That's really what soul means. Others call the soul the seed of self, where my physical impulses, my emotions, and my personality reside. So some people think soul means when God says love with all your heart means your soul. Other New Testament writers would say the soul is the heart of a person. Spirit is the aspect of the person that relates to God. Animals are not known to have a spirit, but the human is. And before we know Christ, we are dead in spirit. There's, more, there's some question about how to divide this. Like when you go to ordinations, are we a dichotomy? Just material and immaterial. Are we a trichotomy? Body, soul, and spirit. Fancy words. More and more biblical scholars emphasize that we were designed to be an integrated, inseparable whole. It's knit together. As one writer said, God has created us to be embodied souls endowed with his image. That's how we've been made. Another writer says, the body is the means by which the invisible is made visible. You need the body for the visible to display the invisible. You need the body. We are not, nor ever were meant to be separated that's why death is so tragic. That's why Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Both the material and immaterial are interdependent and are included in the priceless worth of the human. It both matters. David says in Psalm 63.1, listen to what David says. David says, My soul thirsts for you, and my body longs for you. I am designed to worship, find pleasure in God with all of me, both body and soul. Why is this so? Why make such a big deal about it? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Kind of obvious? Well, because daily in our world we are buying into a pernicious lie, and that's what this book's sort of about. It's what it emphasizes. And this pernicious lie is that it is possible to separate the immaterial from the material. And not only that, but it's believed by many in society that the immaterial is all that really matters. And when we passively accept that, we are allowing for the abolition or the systematic destruction of man, as the Bible describes him. Let's talk about the abolition of man. This phrase comes from a book C.S. Lewis wrote back in the 40s. And he was arguing in this book that secular society is involved in a systematic downgrading of our worth. Even though his book centers on the use of language to do that, because C.S. Lewis was a master of English language, his main point is relevant. Here's his main point. Listen closely. It might sound really intelligent, but it's not. Listen closely to his main point. He believes there is coming a future where the values and morals of the majority will be controlled by a minority, a small group. The values and morals of the majority will be controlled by a small group. And this is happening. And well, he says in this group, the minority's purpose is to destroy the image of God on the human person. How is this happening? Well, it's been happening for quite a while now, and it goes by a lot of names. I'll get very few... If you like fancy philosophical names, started with Gnosticism, led to Darwinism, 
which led to Kantian dualistic philosophy, which we'll kind of talk about in a second, to where we're now swimming in what's called postmodern ooze. You know, what's, hey man, whatever you think's fine for you. I don't have to think that. What's true for you is not true for me. That's called postmodern ooze. But each of these philosophical movements, even though they stress different points, they lead to the same idea. And here's the idea. That man in his nature can be divided from his soul with no harm being done. Let me show you what I call the two-story approach. That's what this book's about. Man, let's say man is like a two-story house. You have a bottom story or lower story. The lower story sees the physical human body as a machine. We're like a gear in a machine. The body is nothing but a shell piece of clay that can be molded and shaped into anything I want to shape it into. Where one writer says, this body is merely a collection of physical systems, muscle, bones, organs, and cells. They provide no clue to who we are or how we should live. It's just something that I can do with as I choose. This is called the lower story. And, but what really matters is the upper story, where my soul and my spirit dwell. And they usually talk like that about it. It's the real me, the real person lives up there. Some people call feelings and thoughts as the person's authentic self. That's where I should be free to choose as I wish. To be the person I want to be. And they usually say, be the person I want to be. In other words, the body doesn't matter. In fact, the body to some degree can even be a enemy to the desire of the upper story because if I feel differently then it's we're at war so who wins the war well the upper story because that's where my authentic self is we are not an integrated being as scripture seems to teach we are ghosts trapped in a machine Pink Floyd would say welcome my son welcome to the machine if you don't know Pink Floyd don't blame me anyhow the implication what are the implications here's the implication because you don't think people believe this? Listen to the implications. They're everywhere. This theory is everywhere. First of all, let's take abortion. The whole problem with abortion is we bought into the lie of the two-story model. If the mind and will determine the authentic self, then a person is not truly a person until they're old enough to think and to choose and to rationally decide. This is called the personhood argument. When does a person become a person? Listen to this. This is from this book. A British broadcaster named Miranda Sawyer, who described herself as a liberal feminist, said she was always firmly pro-choice. That means she's against, well, she's, okay, if you want to have an abortion, fine. Until she became pregnant with her own baby. Then she began to struggle. I was calling the life, the life inside myself, a baby because I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it just as a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. Babies in the womb don't qualify as human only if someone wants them. Sawyer had run up against the wall of reality, and reality did not fit her ideology. So she began researching the subject and even produced a documentary. Finally, she reached her conclusion. In the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, Abortion is ending a life. Then she added, but perhaps the fact of life isn't what is important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. 
You see, if it doesn't matter about the life, the machine, it matters about the person. So if they're not a person yet, then kill it. If it's an inconvenience to you, it's not made in the image of God. One scientist who discovered DNA, Francis Crick, says no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to life. Who decides when a person's a person? So my sister, Lara Lee, she's 59 years old. She's got the mind of a three, four, probably three-month-old baby. Is she a person? Boy, she's wasted a lot of my mom's money. We should have killed her years ago, right? Sounds harsh. But that's how people think now. But this last week, my son's coach, his name's Cameron Cutsley, just had a baby that was born premature, lived for 22 days, and the poor baby died on Thursday, the funeral Monday. You want to talk about parents that know that child is a real human being? Smart people, especially those with higher degree, because they believe they're intelligent, makes them more of a person, and less intelligent beings should decide, right? No, this is called the two-story perspective. It's not right. It's sin. Second way that this two-story thing happens is transgenderism. It's playing itself out in the transgender craze across this country. It's interesting, not many, like there's a tiny, tiny percentage of people that are transgender, but it makes it sound like they're everywhere. And so we got to just afford their rights. So they have come up with the SOGI laws, the sexual orientation and gender identity laws. My biology might say I'm a man, but my feelings and wants clearly make me feel like a woman. So laws are being passed to protect this mode of thinking. So when a person decides to change their inner feelings or gender identity, the state says, you know what you need to do? Change the body. Don't change your mind. Because the body is a piece of clay that's malleable. Do whatever you want with it. The body is so malleable these days that Facebook has come out with 50 different gender identities you can choose from. I'll give you a couple. Androgynous, genderqueer, non-binary, pangender, bigender, gender fluid, third sex, two-spirit. There's a whole lot more. All of this because the body doesn't matter. Jean-Paul Sartre, the great existential philosopher, said man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. See, it's our choice. But there's only one, here's, there's one problem. There's a movement that's come in that kind of, even though it's on the same side of the progressive liberal statement, they're kind of unknowingly betraying the intrinsic worth of a person. It's called the Me Too movement. So if, if your bio, biology doesn't matter, the Me Too movement says, yes, it does. Yes, it does. So they're kind of fighting against themselves. If gender is all about choice and how I feel, why do so many women still demand special treatment based on their gender? Because the intrinsic reality of our physicality can't be denied. We are either a man or a woman. Even though you feel like one or the other, you can't deny it. But we are buying into this, and it's killing us. And then the final one is just the plastic surgery craze. The highest expression of two-story thinking is the plastic surgery train. If you don't like the way you look, change it. One body change expert has said, we need to go to war with the body and conquer it, and we got the means to do that. And in a strange way, in a strange way, 
Even our obsession with fitness and diet and paying tons of money to stay thin, young, and beautiful betray how we are at war with our bodies. We're never satisfied. They are against who I really want to be. We need to forever and always be changing them. We are not satisfied with the way God made us anymore. And on and on it goes. In two weeks, we're going to talk about how this perspective is killing marriages and human sexuality. But today we're talking about the person. And we are, according to the Bible, integrated both body, soul, and spirit. Listen to John's prayer in 3 John verse 2. This is a beautiful prayer. Beloved, I pray that all may well go with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Praise for both. Because they both matter. They both matter. It all matters. Even the body. I love C.S. Lewis says, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. Like, oh, we're spiritual people. It's all about what matters on the higher realm. There's no good in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. He made them matter. He likes matter. In other words, he likes our humanness. He's the one that invented it in the first place. We think we're so spiritual because we don't care about this body, but God sure did. He made it fearfully and wonderfully. Do you know how much God cares about the body? He allows his son to be in a human body for all eternity. It's called the incarnation. Jesus came to take on our body so he could be like his brothers in every way. John says, you know what the biggest lies of the Antichrist will be is when they say Jesus did not come in the flesh. That's the Antichrist. Jesus came in the flesh and died a physical death because he cares about this body. So then, last question, what is man? How do we answer our original question? We are physical beings that have been given the breath of God in order to display His image, bring Him glory, while also enjoying His glory. And here's the most profound statement on what is man. It's found in the book of Revelation as John looks to the future for mankind. Look at the future for mankind. It's incredible. Here's the future. You made them, these are the people He redeemed, you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. So a priest is somebody who can relate to God, can offer sacrifices and worship to God, so we are made for God, and they shall reign, that means rule, where? Flying in the cloudless sky, in vapor form. No, we are here to reign whom on earth? Can you hear the, just the feet thudding on the, ground, the brown dirt? We are made to worship God while we reign on earth. Worshippers, we're royalty, we're going to be servants, and we're going to be kings and queens who walk and rule on this planet forever. In other words, we are human. What a gift. What a gift. Do you act like a human or an animal? 